Uh, look at God's Word now in Colossians chapter 1. We'll read it. Uh, we're looking at verses 21 to 23 today, but I'm going to ask that you look back to verse 15. Uh, we'll read from 15 through 23. Colossians chapter 1, verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Let's pray together. Lord, as we look to your word now, we pray that you would open the eyes of our heart, that you would give us understanding, that you would apply and make transformation in our lives through your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. In the previous verses, and the reason I wanted to go back and reread these is to get Paul's flow of thought that we looked at last week, those six verses that were so rich and we just, you know, barely cut across the surface. There's so much in them. But they're all together one thought. Now we're slowing down a little bit more today, just three verses, but these three verses flow out of those thoughts that Paul expressed in the previous ones. We saw Christ as creator and sustainer, that he holds everything together. And part of that creating and sustaining, there's a thread that runs through that. In fact, it's a thread that runs through all of Scripture, is his work of redemption. We go back all the way, and we've looked at that in recent weeks. We can go all the way back to Genesis and see how this thread began that the promise of hope of redemption was there. Christ is our Redeemer. He has bought us back from slavery. He has rescued us from sin. He has revived us from death. We have been reborn. And Paul writes in verse 20, to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And so in these three verses that we look at today, he begins to unpack what that reconciliation is, explaining what we were, what we are, and what we will be. The story of redemption is a really, really big deal. It's almost something that you can't make a big enough deal about. This is huge. And we can use words like redemption and reconciliation and salvation to the point that we're so comfortable with them that we kind of forget It's a really, really big deal. This is where all of our hope hangs. Listen to how Peter describes the grandeur of the gospel in 1 Peter 1. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, 
He's talking about in the Old Testament. The thread runs all the way through. Inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that, you, that they were serving not themselves but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. You see, redemption is something that's so grand, it's so almost too good not to be true, that even the angels long to look into it, long to understand it, long to grasp it. Now you may think it's not so grand. Or, if you're honest, you may say, okay, I acknowledge it's grand, but sometimes I just don't feel it. Not something we'd share with each other in a small group setting or announce at church that we feel that way, but if we're really honest with ourselves, sometimes we struggle to believe this because life is happening all around us. And we wonder where God is and what He's up to and what He's doing. Let me encourage you this morning, don't allow guilt and shame hearing a preacher say that the gospel is grand and you not feeling it. Don't allow guilt and shame to rain down on you. Instead, come with me and look at this passage and look at the grandeur of the gospel that we see in verses 21 to 23. All that God has done for us in Christ. And so look with me in verse 21. First, he says, we were alienated and hostile in mind doing evil deeds. Our sin alienates us from God. We see this again in the very beginning in the Garden of Eden. What happened when Adam and Eve sinned? They were immediately cut off. They were alienated. Paul expresses this in, in, uh, in, in, in bigger terms when he says in Ephesians 2.1, And you were dead in the trespasses and sin in which you once walked. This is our condition. We are born sinners. This alienation between us and God is vertical, but this alienation is not just vertical, it's also horizontal. Sin causes alienation between each other. We don't have to live very long to experience this. Again, so many truths that we look at, you only have to go in the nursery to see them expressed out. And if you want to discover, unless there's just one child in there, there's no alienated relationships typically, although there can be between them and the caretaker if they want to pitch fit or something. But typically, if you have more than two children, you can experience alienation on a horizontal level if you just go in the nursery. But we know this is true. We've lived life long enough. We know this in our homes, in our families, in our marriages. Uh, we know this in a workplace. We know this in our neighborhoods. We know this across the board. And of course, we don't have to Turn on the news to be reminded that we live in a fractured, broken world because of fear, because of jealousy, because of anger, because of so many other things that lead to this fracture. He adds to this indictment that we were hostile in mind. In Ephesians, if you notice, let me just stop here for a second. If you notice, I'm referring to a lot of other passages this morning. That's because Paul wrote these letters to these young churches, and there are many parallel passages and one of the uh, hinge pins of hermeneutics, how we interpret Scripture, is we let Scripture interpret Scripture. And so where another passage, a parallel passage in this, in this example, speaks to it, opens it up, helps us understand it, we're going to look at these things. Paul, in Ephesians, describes it in verse, uh, chapter 2, verse 3, that we were gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. This is how we were wired 
because of sin in our lives. In chapter 4, verse 18, he said that we were darkened in our understanding. Now, we know that Paul was combating the Gnostic teaching that was happening here in Colossae. They were telling the Colossians that they needed new knowledge, special knowledge, additional knowledge. And what Paul is stating here is that they don't need new knowledge. Knowledge wasn't the problem. Their minds are hostile to God because we are born at enmity. We are born enemies of God. Romans 8, 7 says, For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. So our problem is not a matter of the will, as the Gnostics taught. We need new life. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. We need a new mind, a new heart. We need to be reborn. We need to be recreated. And of course, that's what happens in redemption. Ephesians 4.23 says, You and I need to be renewed in the spirit of your minds to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. True righteousness and holiness? Is that, is that descriptive of me? Well... It is in Christ because that's what happens in redemption. I get His righteousness and His holiness accounted to my, or accredited to my account. Well, because we're hostile in mind, so we're alienated, we're hostile in mind, the third thing he says is that we do evil deeds. Again, we don't have to look hard to see this. Before coming to Christ, we can look back in our own lives. We can look around in the world around us. The psalmist captured this in chapter 14. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. And Paul expands on this and echoes this in Romans 1. For although they knew God, they they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts We're darkened. This is what we were. And we don't like to hear it. I mean, even as mature Christians, there's still just a little edge to this. But we've got to understand our situation. To understand the bad news before the grandeur of the good news is as grand as it is. There's a story told of a lady, Huntington, who invited one of her friends, the Duchess of Buckingham, to come and hear George Whitfield preach. The Duchess wrote a response to her, and this is what she wrote. It is monstrous to be told that you have a heart as sinful as the common wretches that crawl on the earth. This is highly offensive and insulting, and I cannot but wonder that your ladyship should relish any sentiments so much at variance with high rank and good breeding. We snicker, rightly so. It's almost a little bit over the top. But you see, what she's saying here proves the accusation against her. Our evil deeds are proof enough that we are hostile in mind toward God. But when we no further want to hear this, it is only additional proof of that hostility that we don't measure up. But thank God that's not the end of the story. Thank God that it didn't end there in verse 21. It goes on, and let's continue in verse 22. So because that's who we were, alienated, hostile in our minds, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. We who were alienated have been made at peace with God in Christ. 
The reconciliation, the word here is past tense. It's happened. It's done. It is finished, as Jesus said on the cross. And Paul explains that it was in his body of flesh by his death. He was again going after the Gnostic teaching that Jesus was not really human. They were teaching that Jesus only kind of appeared as a man. Of course, John 1.14 makes that utterly false. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus, fully God, fully human, became flesh like us in order to reconcile us in His death. So the reconciliation is something that Christ did, not the Colossians, not you, not me. We have no part in achieving this. We're simply the recipients of it by His grace. You who are by faith in Christ, reconciled to God, are no longer His enemy. You are not God's enemy. God is not your enemy. He is not punitive in any of His measures toward you. God disciplines those He loves, but there's a difference between discipline and punishment. And God is not punitive toward His children. He's not getting you. He is not punishing you. He loves you. You are not His enemy. He now sees you as righteous because of Christ. You are now sons and daughters. You have nothing to fear. You are safely in Christ. So when we are anxious and stressed and, and weighed down by fear and, and, and all the weight that we encumber in this life, we have to run back to this truth. Because I, we, we've all got gospel amnesia, right? We forget this over and over again. Something bad happens in our life and we begin thinking that God is getting us, that we did something wrong, that He's getting us back. This is not the God of the Bible. This is not the story of the gospel. We have to run back to the gospel truth again and again and be reminded of it. This reconciliation, another aspect that we have to understand is that it took place where it took place. It took place at a cross. It's important to understand this because we have to understand God's righteousness. In Romans 8, verse 3, Paul explains, by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh. You notice he keeps adding this additional language of flesh and body. He's dealing with the Gnostic stuff there. And even in Romans, he uses this same language. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. What Paul is expressing here is that God did not change his standard. The righteous requirement of the law, which is unable to save in and of itself, has been fulfilled in us through Christ's death in the flesh. What we couldn't do for ourselves, what the law could not do for us, Christ has done. God didn't just decide to consider us reconciled. He actually accomplished our reconciliation through the death of Jesus. F.F. Bruce has this wonderful quote, If human beings are to be reconciled to God, to enjoy peace with Him, they must have the assurance that He who will by no means clear the guilty has nevertheless accepted them, sinful as they are. Those who were offenders have been set right with Him through the merit of another. Those who were hostile have become His friends. His love revealed in Christ is poured out and wells up in our hearts. 
He accomplished our reconciliation, our redemption through Christ in the flesh, by His death, in history, because now He remains both just and now becomes our justifier. Jesus doesn't change. His ways are always the same. His character, He is immutable. And so our status now is in Christ based on His completed work that He made Him to be sin who knew no sin so that in Him we might become the very righteousness of God. That's what we are. We've seen what we were. Now we look at, we've seen what we are. Let's consider what we will be. This righteousness that is ours in Christ, described in verse 22, he goes on, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. The language here is of of a legal nature. Jesus will present us before the Father legally blameless. God, again, didn't just overlook. He didn't just consider us reconciled. Jesus' death actually legally accomplished our crediting with his blamelessness, this holiness. We're no longer enslaved to sin. We're no longer alienated from God. We are new creations. The old is gone and the new has come. This is real and it's true and it's going to happen, but it's in the future. Jesus accomplished our redemption in order that. It's something that is yet to happen. We will be presented holy without defect, sinless. We will be above above reproach. No one will be able to accuse us. The righteousness of Christ will be realized. Paul paints this picture in Ephesians 5. Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and, and, and without blemish. It's a beautiful picture, but we're not there yet. And we feel that tension, don't we? This now and not yet that we describe, this reality that we know is true and certain and is secure in Christ, but we have yet to realize there's this gap that we live in, and we feel this gap. We know that right now, I'm not holy, I'm not blameless, I'm not above reproach in my thoughts and my actions. And this is again why we come back to the gospel again and again. We stabilize ourselves in the truth of what we know God has done for us in Christ. And this stabilizing effort is what he goes on to explain in verse 23. Look there. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. The English wording here can, if we just give it a glossary reading, reading may lead us to think that somehow we can lose our salvation. Are we going to make it? He says, if indeed you hold on and you think, oh my goodness, there's a chance. Is that really what he's saying? Paul is not suggesting that the Colossians could lose their salvation. Jesus makes it very clear in Scripture, those who, he, who are His, who He saves, no one can pluck them from His hand. But what He is describing is the way in which our salvation looks. It is by faith, from the human perspective. And, and He uses this language of a building to help us understand this. He says stable. It's talking about a foundation. You've got to have a foundation to be stable. Established in the truth of the gospel. 
To believe in anything else was to shift from the foundation that is, is Christ to a foundation that is not Christ, to put our faith in something else. Paul wanted to be sure that the Colossians weren't doing that, that they weren't listening to the message of these false teachers who were coming in. And we, too, do well to discern what the gospel is. Hold on to what the gospel is. Know the truth of the gospel. At times, stand up and fight for the gospel when others try and proclaim a message that distorts or counters the gospel itself. He says not only stable, but steadfast. It's describing loyalty. Think of this as the wall, standing by the truth. Paul makes this appeal in 1 Corinthians 15. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Paul knows, and we know too, that we can be fickle people. Following the latest fads, the latest trends... We like to think that it's all in our past, but you know, all you have to do is watch one of those documentaries on the, on the decade in which you grew up in. You know what I'm talking about? Everything that you thought was so important, that was so amazing to possess or be like, is now the laughingstock of everyone who watches that documentary. That's true of every generation. But that describes what we're like. We follow fads, we, put, we invest our energy and our resources and our affections in things that just whew, are like the wind. Paul says, don't be like that with the gospel. Be loyal, be committed, be firmly grounded. And let me say that the way to do this is to know Christ in the way that he revealed himself. That is, the Word made flesh. The Holy Spirit uses the Scriptures to deepen our understanding and our loyalty to Him. And the Scriptures protect us from going astray or becoming disloyal. So if you've tried Christianity and found it unsatisfactory, my my guess is that you've tried to be moral, or you've tried to pray, or you've tried to have peace. And what you've probably found in each of these cases is, one, you, you aren't good enough because none of us are. Prayer never got you your whole wish list, because that's not what prayer is for. And peace is always out of your grasp. The gospel is not about you being good enough, or God giving you what you want, or all of your troubles being vanquished from this life. The gospel is the good news of the creator of the universe who made everything and holds everything together, reconciling you to himself so that he makes you good enough, that he changes the desires of your heart, that he is your peace in the storms of this life. In other words, you don't try Christianity. You either trust Christ or you trust yourself. Paul is calling the Colossians, in fact, he's calling all of us today to trust Christ, to hold on to Him, to remain loyal, to not be drawn away by the false gold of this world, the fool's gold of this world. The third description he gives, not shifting from the hope of the gospel. And this is this forward-looking perspective, the hope of the gospel, what it is that we're looking forward to, what is the object of our hope. Paul doesn't want to see the Colossians dissuaded from what God has promised to do. And you can imagine how hard this was for them, given all that they had on them, because life is hard for you. And you know how easy it is to be dissuaded, to believe false things. 
We know the gospel. We know what the message is. We know what it's all leading up to. We know future tense. It's going to be restoration, consummation, right? Heaven. Everything's going to be made right. Everything's going to be fixed. But life is happening right now. And there are days when God seems far off. We turn on the news and we say, God, where were you when? Or we get a phone call from a loved one or a friend and we say the same thing, God, where were you? We feel the pain of a body that's not working the way that it should, or loneliness or anxiety, and we say, where is the hope of heaven? And Paul is saying, you come back to the gospel. You come back to the gospel. Don't shift from the hope of the gospel. It's the foundation is Christ. Don't move off of that foundation. Don't go down a road that will lead to fear. Don't walk down a path that ends in despair. Don't let your desire be to be liked by others to lead you down a passageway that ends in anxiety and stress. Don't shift your hope from the gospel. Come back to it again and again. Lean into it. Rest on it. It is the finished work of Christ on your behalf. See, the believing in the gospel that emerges here is one of striving, fighting, laboring. And so often I emphasize the resting and the peace and the finished work that it is, and it is all of those things, but there's also this fighting and striving and laboring that we experience in the sanctification process. The Christian, is not, the Christian life is not an active life, an inactive life. There's no verse in Scripture that says, let go and let God. <laughs> it's not in there. Instead, there are countless verses that describe this labor, striving, fighting, effort, both in dying to sin and living to Christ. Don't don't misunderstand me. Don't misunderstand me to say that somehow you're earning your salvation. This striving, this fighting, this laboring that I'm talking about is not meritorious. Christ's work is finished. But the laboring is a sign of true faith. It is a fruit of grace in our lives. Ephesians 6, 9 says, And let us not grow weary in doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. You hear the effort that's there? Don't grow weary in doing good. James 1, 12, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. Steadfast in trials. Hebrews 10, For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. Colossians 1, the same book, the same chapter, a couple of verses later. We'll get to this in the coming weeks. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom, that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, Paul writes, struggling with all his energy that he, may, that he powerfully works Within me. You see, even the striving, the toil, the fighting, the effort is actually God in us. It is a gift from God. And Paul captures this in Philippians 2 so clearly. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only in my presence, but more, much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So while we strive and we labor, it's a sign of faith in our hearts and lives. Even this striving is God's working. It's His gracious working in our lives for His good pleasure. This is such good news. 
The one who has redeemed us continues not only to empower us, he strives with us. He is not far off. He doesn't just give us the gift of redemption and run away. He gives us himself. Even though we were his enemies and we were alienated, hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he reconciled us in his body by his death so that he might present us holy and blameless before the Father. That's what we hold on to. Remaining stable, steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel. And we work out our faith, striving, laboring, fighting to put off sin, to put on Christ, all the while looking back to see it has been Him working all along. See, this hope comes to us not as a theory or a theology or an idea, but as a person, and His name is Jesus. And I hope you are trusting in Him today, because if you are, He is with you in life. He is preserving you, delivering you, and He will finish the work that He began in you. Listen to the words of the psalmist. For though the Lord is high, He regards the lowly, but the haughty He knows from afar. Though I walk in the midst of trouble, You preserve my life. You stretch out Your hand against the wrath of my enemies, and Your right hand delivers me. The Lord will fulfill His purpose for me, Your steadfast love, O Lord, endures forever. Do not forsake the work of your hands. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you that you are the same yesterday, today, and forever, that you never change. And so we can look at your character, at who you are, your faithfulness, and we can put our confidence in you, knowing that you will finish what you've started. I pray today that if there is anyone here who is not trusting in Christ, Lord, would you draw them to yourself? Would you help them to see? It's not their righteousness. It's not their goodness. It's yours and yours alone that you give to them freely by grace. Would you lead people to trust you? And Lord, for each believer that's here today, I pray that you would build their faith that we would be stable and steadfast and not shifting in the hope of the gospel, but that we would come back to the gospel again and again when we face and encounter the difficulties that we will certainly encounter, even as we walk out these doors today, that life holds for us, that we would not get our eyes off of Jesus, but that we would look to Him in faith, trusting that finished work of reconciliation, knowing that we are redeemed, children of God, secure and safe in your arms. Would you give us that confidence today? In Jesus' name, amen.